Welcome to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast, presented by Team Snap and hosted by veteran soccer broadcaster, Dean Linky. Uniting coaches at every level of the game around the love of the game, we are United Soccer Coaches. Now, here's our host, Dean Linky. We have another great show for you today, folks, as we continue to look around at all the great stories in soccer, college soccer, pro soccer, you name it. We start the show by talking to George Kuntz. He's the head coach at Cal State Fullerton. After an amazing run at UC Irvine and a couple other places, he has settled in at Cal State Fullerton. The Titans are 7-0 to start the season for men's soccer, and they're ranked in the top 15 in the country. George Kuntz, a great guest. Kristen Jones, you talk about loving your alma mater, loving your program. She played at UC San Diego, and she played there the year after UC San Diego went from Division Three to Division Two, and a year after they won a national championship, they immediately win a national championship in D2 with Kristen Jones, who was a superstar player. Kristen Jones ends up hanging around. She's assistant coach for a long, long time, then associate head coach. Last year, she's got the interim tag where there are two other assistant coaches. They're kind of three co-coaches as they're knowing that they're going to D1. They got to make sure they get the right hire. Well, she takes the team all the way to the Final Four. They name her as the full-time coach. And those two assistants that were co-coaches, they like her so much, they stay around with her. UC San Diego's number one in the country, D2 women. Getting ready to go D1 next year. Kristen Jones is on the program. NWSL headed down the stretch run. Jen Cooper, who is the true Zen master of all things NWSL. She handles the editorial content for NWSL broadcasts. She's a great guest, and she is plug and play. She will rock and roll NWSL all day long. And we wrap it up meeting two more outstanding members of our 30 under 30 class. Richard Wall and Bridgie Palatino are on the program. We start with George Kuntz after this message from our presenting sponsor, Team Snap. Does managing your club or league feel like a second job? If so, you might need some help. With Team Snap, you can get it. Their customers save up to 15 hours each week on tasks such as communication, registration, scheduling, and more. Plus, everything you need is online, which means no more trips to the bank, no more lost checks, and no more colossal spreadsheets. Bring your club or league into the 21st century with Team Snap. Go to TeamSnap.com to learn more. I am Dean Linky, and this is the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. we got a big show today. We'll take a look at D2 Women, UC San Diego. We'll visit with Jen Cooper and cover all things NWSL. She'll give you all the picks, who's going to win it, who's going to win the awards as we're coming down the stretch of another exciting NWSL season, and we'll meet two more members of our 30 Under 30 class. One of the things trending on the United Soccer Coaches podcast is finding who's trending. That's how we're trending. We're trending for the trending. And right now what's trending is George Coons. And Cal State Fullerton, the Titans, 7-0, and top 15 in the country. Perfect through 7, George. That works any day, right? Yeah, I guess 7 is lucky, I guess. 7-0, and George. You've had an amazing career over 30 years. We all know what you did at UC Irvine. You made the switch to Cal State Fullerton a few years ago, and now you've got this team here. You made it to the tournament, uh, you know, two years ago. Didn't make it last year. You look like you've got a team that can get back there, George. Is that the game plan? It's always the game plan. It's always a game plan. We have a, a very exciting team. I, I mean, I, it, I cannot explain how exciting it is to watch this group. 
just the way they train. And we just got out of training, by the way. And uh, it's just fun to see their, their competition level. They compete every day. Take us back to 2013, your decision to leave UC Irvine. Remind us how all of that went down and uh, why you picked Cal State Fullerton. Well, you know, it was just really by accident. I had no, no intentions uh, at the time. We had played North Carolina at um, at UCI and beaten North Carolina at UCI and won nothing. And we were flying to Maryland for the next round, Sweet 16. And we got to Maryland, and we played Maryland, and it was a, a very close game. We lost by a goal, and, you know, I, I'm flying back, and, and just – in my mind, somewhere flying back those six hours, in my mind it was like, what? We want to get to that next level, to that next echelon. And, and uh, got back home and had some discussions with, with, with UCI, and we had, we had progressed so far, great people there, loved the people. There's still a lot of people there, obviously, that I know, and fantastic group, and we did make some movement forward. We just wanted to make that next step, and... and uh, a friend who was with a, another club that I had helped um, said, you know, and he was an alumnus of South State Fullerton, asked me if I'd be interested. I said, well, I, I don't know. And and he put the word out there, and they seemed very interested and ended up being in the process and ended up getting off of the job. And it, it, it was a surprise to me. And so then I had to make a big decision. And within that week, talking to a lot of really close people and really – trying to challenge myself, felt like that was the right decision at the time, and it really motivated me to take that next jump in, in my mind to, to prove, to prove to myself and to prove to others that, you know, this can be done, this can be blueprinted, and, and, and we could have a successful team. At that time, I didn't realize that, you know, that hadn't had a winning season in nine years and hadn't, hadn't been to the NCAA tournament in 14 years, so it was a little daunting to go from the first from the first place team at that time to the last place team, and the biggest change was the mentality. I mean, the t- talent was there. There was a lot of talent there, uh, not all the pieces, but enough to make a run. And and um, unbelievably, we ended up in the final game of the Big West tournament against UCI and, and won it in PKs at the same place I'd been 19 years prior. So it was a little crazy year that year, but I think from that the momentum snowballed and. We had a lot of believers, and, and we really tried to bring in guys that believe in our system, which is a possession style, and we have a really nice flavor, a really nice team. Well, what's been the key to this 7-0 start, Coach? What's clicking for you? I think it's the chemistry. The guys love each other. You know, you, you, we had a lot of talent last year. I thought last year we, we, we could have done a, a lot of damage. That was a big that, – that was a year for us that we felt we were going to – make huge impact, and we ended up having eight ties. And you take six of those ties, seven of those ties, and, and turn them into wins, and you're in the top 15. So I thought we had a good team last year. We graduated like 14 seniors. We brought in a lot of guys. A lot of these young guys are extremely talented. We're under the radar. Uh, some JC guys and some some guys from, from that had transferred. And we, we kind of put the stew together. You know, when you're putting that stew together, you have to keep adding ingredients and and you, you check, check, taste the flavor and see how that flavor tastes, and you, you keep on going, let it simmer, let it cook, until you have a nice a nice stew, and that's kind of where we are. The guys get along well in the locker room. They they train hard. They compete. There's not a huge drop-off between the first 11 and the next five or six or eight. You know, and the whole group is very competitive. 
And, uh, and, and that really has helped us quite a bit because you can maintain a level of pressure throughout the game. As you navigate the NCAA men's Division One college soccer scene and you think about, you know, Akron always getting there as a mid-major and you see Santa Barbara back in the day, you know that Stanford won three in a row. Maryland started poorly last year, came all the way back to win it, but they're a name that's always there. Can a team like Cal State Fullerton win a national championship? And if they can, how do they do it, Coach? Well, Cal State Fullerton will win a national championship. It may not be during my time, but they will. I mean, we this this program, this school has already been to a Final Four. Al Mystery took this school to a Final Four when they had no, really not a lot of support for soccer, for football. So, I mean, having been there, and, and, and I use that story all the time. If Akron can do it, and I think Akron's a great program, if Akron can do it, why can't we? I said that at UCI. I said that at Pepperdine when I was with the women. I said that at Kowloon when I was at, you know, a small division three school. When, when, when these other schools can do it, why can't we? There's no reason why not. This is a sport that's very unique in that not always the power, the power schools are going to win these, win the big games. It's, it's, it's what's within the team. There's, there's, you know, there's 11 players and it goes a little deeper than that, but, I mean, absolutely Cal State Fullerton can do it. And, and because of the, the strength of players in the Southern California region alone, just guys that are always under the radar in the junior college market here and, and, the, and the number of schools and the transfers, there's always an opportunity to have a team that can challenge at the, at the highest level, in my opinion, because it's a school that, that doesn't cost a lot and, and it really caters to to students that are community, local students that, that can afford it. And the stadium is one of the best that I've seen in the country. I've been everywhere. So it, the, the, all the pieces are there. I just love where I'm at right now, and I, I feel like we're going to continue to get those guys to buy into the style that we play. People watch us all around the world, and I get texts from all over the world saying, we just love your style. I want to transfer to your school because of your style of play. And that really warms my heart because my father was born and raised in Mexico City. I fell in love with Brazil in 1970 at the World Cup final with my father. And ever since, I've really wanted to play that style, the possession style, very attack-minded, a lot of flair, a lot of creativity, skillful player. And hopefully we have some of that. Coach, I just mentioned earlier, 30-plus years coaching. You sound like you've got fire to go 30 more Sounds like you're in a good place, loving where you are right now, loving coaching, and sounds like you want to do it for a long, long time. Is that accurate? Yes, sir. I I have two phenomenal assistants that actually played at UCI on on our squads and were tremendous players there, Carlos Aguilar and Jorge Reyes. Uh, We also have a goalkeeping coach that we brought in from from Mount Sac, and he's he's been fantastic, Andy Gutierrez. And and another young man, David Diaz, who just came over from Dominguez Hills. This group of coaches – and student assistants um, and volunteers have done a tremendous job. Carlos has been with me, gosh, almost 12 years now, something like that. As a player and as an assistant, he volunteered at UCI. He's just been tremendous. And so, with 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 those guys, they put a fire into my belly, and they you know they they keep me motivated uh, as well as the players. And I have two young kids that love the game, and and not necessarily playing you know, at. Um, full-time, but they love watching and they love being fans of the game, and so all that keeps me motivated, and just being on the field, being on the field with these guys and seeing the progress and the excitement at the university, 
um, just keeps me keeps me going. And I, I I absolutely love teaching the game. I love teaching the game. That's the bottom line. Well, and, and I've witnessed that. So for those of people that uh, are not as familiar with George Coons, here's a guy who has coached amateur teams to great success. As he mentioned, he coached women's team. You'll go to particularly an AYSO event. He's right there you know, doing cl- clinics, and it doesn't matter what level, right, for you, Coach, right? You're always involved, right? Yes, I'm very involved in the grassroots level, so I could be teaching five-year-olds at a clinic in Hawaii one weekend, and then you're doing a clinic for AYSO coaches. Uh, we just did one with our team earlier this season with all the coaches coaching younger kids, and, and to me, that's where it's at. I mean, I, I was taught that a long time ago by my father. He was, a, he was an A-licensed coach. He played professionally in Mexico, and, and you know, giving back is so super important. And, and having those kids buy in and wanting to wear the jersey and having the community buy in, is, 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 as you know, we're seeing it with the USL and the NISA teams and the MLS teams now, how important that is to, our, to, our, to the next growth period in the United States. Super important. So for me, that's what it's about, is it, is it empowering young coaches, men and women, to be coaches? and to help those people along the way to, to leave a legacy so that they're the next people in line, and also to help young players become fans of the game and learn it the right way, the skillful way. Coach, we also see you often, even though you're out on the West Coast, we see you as much as you can at the conventions. Why has United Soccer Coaches always been important to you, George? To me, it's been very important all my life, all my coaching career, because I've been able to watch true uh, professionals in the game, going back to watching sessions with Anson Doran, Ziggy Schmidt, the rest of his whole soul, um, all the former national team players and all the people that we've brought in, the, the United Soccer Coaches has brought in, that brought in from Europe to run sessions. I just sit there, take note. Um, the, the socialization part, talking to other coaches about their challenges and what they're going through and how they overcame those challenges, whether it's a a budget challenge or a recruiting challenge or a game a game management challenge or a tactical challenge. Those moments, those conventions, you're sharing the same ideas with people. Sometimes you feel like an island as a coach. You're on an island as a coach, but getting together there, everybody's pretty much on the same page. They're all trying to learn more. They're trying to learn about more, more from other coaches. You're trying to make new connections, trying to get further in the game. And that's what I think it is. It's bringing the whole soccer world together. And it's the biggest coaching convention in the world. There's nothing like it ever that I've seen anywhere. And it's just an amazing group of people that are together. And I look forward to it every year. Finally, Coach, because uh, we often uh, get kind of caught up in our little world over on the East Coast and even in the Midwest and Big Ten country. In fact, uh, even right now I'm getting ready to call Notre Dame, Michigan State on FS1. And we forget the great soccer that is out west, and we forget to get their opinions as well. So with that, kind of a two-part question to end, and that is give your take on the status of college soccer today and why it's important. And then off of that, George, I want to know your opinion on what Sacho and the Big Ten and ACC, a little bit of Pac-12, are pushing for the full academic year. There's no wrong answers on either one. George, you have the floor. This is a big question for me. It's so important that soccer, soccer or football as we call it, is relevant. And I think it will be more irrelevant if we don't have a year-long season. I think over time it's very important to push it off to the side. And I think having players in a, in a national championship tournament playing on a Friday and a Sunday or even an extra day 
just having one day off in between two major games is almost physically impossible. It's asking, it's really, we're, we're, we're wishing um, a situation of, of injury on our players. It's not fair to our student-athletes. So to have a preparation time of a week to prepare for a game, for, for marketing to prepare for a game for a week, to really have a build-up to a game. Right now, the way it's structured is this. So we have a training. We have a game on Friday and Sunday. We have a pregame on Saturday. We have a game on Sunday. Monday's a day off. Tuesday, Wednesday, we can train. Thursday's a pregame. Friday's a, a game. Saturday's a regeneration day. There's really only two days to train. And during our, our, our um, train, the, the, the periodization during our, our season, we really only have one training day because we play Wednesday and Saturday. So it's impossible to get as much training and proper teaching into our players that we can. It's really important that, that we adopt this model at some point to keep this game relevant at the college level. It's a super game to watch at the college level. There's people that only want to watch college soccer because of the excitement, but we have to create more of a buzz by, by spreading out the year. I think it's really important for the health of the players, for the student-athlete experience, for the fans, for, for marketing, for the, the sponsorships, everything. It, we need we need a little bit more time to train those kids during the year. Full disclosure, folks, uh, I got to meet George. I don't know if he remembers it because he's definitely more memorable than I ever will be, but I got to meet him when I was with the U.S. World Cup team in the early 90s, being out on the West Coast, living down in Orange County, and was impressed with you then. Even more impressed now, 30 years later almost, 7-0 and to start the season, George. We're rooting for you here at United Soccer Coaches. Congrats on a great start to the season, and keep it going, okay? Thank you so much, Dean. Honored to be on and, and humbled. Thank you so much. George Coots will come back with Kristen Jones, the head coach for UC San Diego. She's taking her team to D1 next year, but before she does it, heck, they may win a national title as well. Registration is now open for the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. Make your plans to join us January 15th through the 19th for five days of coaching education, networking, meal and social functions, award presentations, and more. Register before December 11th to secure the best rate. Visit unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org to learn more. The United Soccer Coaches Convention, your event for all things coaching. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast. If you listen to this program and it looks like you are, the numbers are great we appreciate you you know that we cover all levels of college soccer d1 d2 d3 naia you name it and this week focus on d2 d2 women the number one team in the country uc san diego they are led by Kristen jones which is a great story because brian mcmanus was there for 32 years Kristen jones played under him she coached under him was associate head coach under him and then kind of a little bit late in the ballgame he decided to step down and so UC San Diego not sure what they're going to do they basically named Christian Jones interim coach but they went ahead and said hey everybody kind of do it collaboratively so Christian and her two assistants did that they had a great season as always making it to the final four before losing to the eventual winner in Bridgeport she got the tag removed and yet both those coaches stayed with her, and we'll get more on those two fine gentlemen as well. UC San Diego's number one in the country, and now they're going to go to D1 next year. They're going to go to Big West next year, so definitely the place to be, UC San Diego, Kristen Jones. Kristen, thanks for being on the program. Thanks for having me, Dean. Appreciate it. Let's get this deep passion for UC San Diego out of the way because 
you played there, you've coached there forever, and now you're the head coach. I can't think of a better choice. I mean, you played 78 games, 26 goals, eight game winners, tons of assists. You see San Diego has got to be your favorite place to be. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely one way of looking at it. Yeah, I'm originally from San Diego, too, so being able to stay local and, and to play, you know, at a program that was as strong as, as UC San Diego and the success that we had, um, it was easy to find the passion passion within the program um, and, you know, just staying on to coach and the timing and the circumstances surrounding some other coaches allowed me to climb that ladder rather quickly, but, you know, the people here within the department, the other coaches um, and the student athletes were fortunate enough to coach. It makes it a pure joy to be able to, to be a part of UC San Diego Athletics. You just heard me say so many storylines to follow, including the fact that, by the way, you're 5-0, and number one in the country. You've outscored the opposition 12-2. to i got to talk to you on how in the world you let two goals go in, by the way, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get to that. I, I want the backstory here, though, because you, Trent Painter, and Greg Laporte were kind of community coaches last year as they conducted a national search that rightfully came right back to you. But talk about that dynamic because I think it's even more amazing in that after all of that, you are named the head coach, and both those fine gentlemen stayed with you. Yeah, we've got we've got a good thing going on here. Um, I'm pretty fortunate that even before um, you know Greg had left to go to another institution, he had he had coached here and part of our program for six seasons. And so when the job um, opened up, and you know we needed another assistant coach last year, he jumped at the opportunity. Um, and Trent has has done a great job here as well over the past. Um, eight seasons, and so just a combination of us three working together, um, you know, they have the same passion within the program that I do, they believe in the culture that, you know, our program lives by, and, and it's just, just pretty seamless, it's very seamless just to have them kind of stay on board this year, and to be honest, I don't think I was going to give them an opportunity to go anywhere else, <laughs> it worked out the way it was supposed to. So it sounds like after all of that, you end up making it kind of low stress where they're like, yeah, Kristen, you're the right person to take this job and we want to stay with you. Is that how it played out? <laughs> low stress for maybe some people. I don't know about me. But, um, you know, there were, there were great candidates. I know it was a full national search. Um, you know, with the transition of Division One looming and, and, you know, the, just the success that the program had had, it, it, it was a big job and people wanted it. So, I, you know, I, I take a lot of pride in the fact that the administration felt I was the right person for it. Um, you know, I do think that, that the low stress or the idea of that was, was good for the players. You know, we tried very hard to not let them get caught up in the whole, in the job search itself. So, um, yeah, it just worked out the way it was supposed to, and, and here we are. Keep moving along. Well, it didn't hurt that you could say scoreboard, right? Final four is a final four, and that's saying something, right? Yeah, all season long, the administration just trying to not put pressure on the three of us, kept saying, you know, you're not going to be judged on winning, and you're not going to be judged on winning and losing, and then all of a sudden we found ourselves in the final four, and and within the interview process, I was very glad I could put that on our resume and and in my job portfolio. It It made it sound a little bit better. Before we talk about this season at 5-0, and as you've got games this weekend and the fact that you've outscored the opposition 12-2, to what does it mean, knowing that you have so much pride in this university and this program, to be going D1 and going Big West? Yeah, I mean it's it's a huge it's a huge honor for the whole department. Um, you know, I think everyone's very very excited in the transition moving forward. I actually was I played on the first team that was Division Two, so 
So, you know, the school, and there's been, there are people here, whether it's coaches or some of the administration who saw the department even transition from three to two. So now to see it go all the way up to one, I know is very rewarding for a lot of those people and just seeing the strides the department's made in general. Um, you know, but we're, we're trying really hard to end on a, on a high note this year. Um, you know, it'd be very easy to look past it with all the hype surrounding the Division One move, but these student athletes here have put their heart and soul into this and, and they just want to make sure that they, that they do whatever they can to try to go as far as they can in this last year of Division Two. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like the San Diego area has always been behind not just men's soccer, but women's soccer. I think there was even like a pro team in that area at some point at a high mm-hmm. level. Like, give us the background on the passion for women's soccer in San Diego. Yeah, I mean, the, in, in terms of soccer in general, the youth soccer community in San Diego is phenomenal. There's a lot of clubs and a lot of high-caliber clubs and a lot of, um, you know, just clubs that just provide good opportunities for players to play and love the game. So um, soccer is a big deal here in San Diego, and, and it was it was kind of a shame to see it was the San Diego spirit back when um, – the Women's Professional League first started after the 99 World Cup, and that team played at University of San Diego, which is a great venue. It holds about 7,000 people, and it's sold out every game. And the atmosphere, um, I think it just has actually trickled down from that, from that situation. And, um, you know, everybody here likes soccer, everyone kind of in the community, but also in the, in the university, in the department. You know, soccer is a big deal here in San Diego, and there's three good collegiate programs now once we go moving Division One, So, um, you know, there's a lot of soccer to watch here and a lot of soccer to be passionate about. Yeah, break down those three P1 programs for next year in that area. Yeah, so it's San Diego State, um, and we're all within probably a 15-mile radius, so that makes it pretty fun um, as well. So San Diego State, and I believe they're in the Mountain West, um, and then University of San Diego, who plays in the West Coast Conference um, with some other private schools. So all three schools are very different, um, you know, what the actual university is. And on a soccer level, they're quite different as well. But, you know, it's a lot of good options for players, you know, in the country wanting to come to San Diego. There's three pretty good options here. And paint us a picture of the competition in the Big West for next year. Yeah, you know, we're, we're happy as a department to get into the Big West because it's a lot of our like institutions. Um, you know, the University of California, um, we don't have any um, schools from the University of California in our current conference in the CCAA. So when you go to the Big West, you're looking at um, a lot of the UC programs, basically most of them except for the ones that are in the Pac-12. Um, and so the Division One schools like UC Santa Barbara, UC Riverside, UC Irvine, UC Davis, and then a lot of the California state schools as well. So um, it's fun. You know, most of the travel is, is Central California and South. We do get to make a trip up to Northern California to face off with Davis, and um, the girls smile when they remember that Hawaii is in our conference, so we also get to head out there. But the conference is exciting. Um, you know, there, there tends to be kind of a different winner every year, and, and every season basically any school can win it. So, you know, we've done a lot of research over the conference um, recently once we realized we were going to be making the jump, and it's an exciting conference to go into. A lot of good soccer teams. A lot of coaches who've been there for a long time who do great jobs with their programs, so we're excited to jump right into that. All right, before you jump into it, you still have some business at hand, so you're 5-0 and to start the season. you got games this weekend. How's this team looking? Uh, obviously, outscoring the opposition 12-2, to 
you're off to a great start. Number one in the country also works. Yeah, you know, we um, we don't we try to not pay too much attention to the national ranking, but it does feel good, and it's a testament to the hard work the girls have put in so far. Um, you know, they the preseason and non-conference games are always very tough while everyone's still trying to figure their teams out. So to get out of that with an unblemished record, we're very excited about. Uh, but it's also a testament to how the team did last year and the pride that the program has in, in finishing, you know, at the Final Four last year. Um, but, yeah, you know, with that ranking, of, you know, there's a target kind of on our back. Everyone wants to be the team to knock us off. But within conference, we're pretty much used to that. Um, you know, we've, we've been successful, you know, lately and in general since we kind of went into the conference. So, you know, we, we try to separate the seasons, our non-conference season. You know, we, we say we won that season because we finished with an unblemished record. And now we're moving into our next season. And, you know, conference every year we – we do whatever it takes to, to win the conference and ultimately the conference tournament and get the automatic qualifier into, into NCAA. So we're, we're excited to get go and see some, you know, opponents we're used to playing. And, you know, we're just we're excited to get this going. And remind us with a shout-out the name of your conference and some of the key teams in your conference right now. Yeah, we're the CCAA, so that's the Collegiate or California Collegiate Athletic Association. So, um, you know, every year, actually, the parity in the in the league has is, is gotten incredible. There's any – you have to show up every single game to win. Um, but, you know, for, for the past couple of years, Sonoma State, Chico State, so their Northern California schools have been very strong – Cal, uh, Cal State LA is up and coming. They knocked off one of the you know top ten teams this year so far, um, and they've got a great little facility because they share some facilities with LAFC, the the MLS team. So you know they've got a lot going for them. But yeah, every every game we got to show up ready to go if if we think we're going to get a positive result out of it. We're here with Kristen Jones, the head coach for UC San Diego women's soccer. They're number one in the country, D two next year. As you heard her talk about, they're going D1. You've had an amazing career as a player, amazing career as a coach. If you listen to this podcast, I love asking this question. What's your best memory as a player and a coach if you had to pinpoint just one or two? Whew. That was a long time. A long time here. Um, you know, I was, I was, I say I'm fortunate, but I, I was, I'm very fortunate that I was able to play on, on the teams that I played at here. You know, we won two national championships while I was here. Um, I would probably have to say my freshman year we um, we won the game with seven seconds left on the clock, and I was part of that play. I got the assist on that play, so that was that has to take the cake. Um, we were a brand new team to Division Two, and no one really gave us a shot. I think we lost our first two games that season, to be honest. No one really gave us a shot, and we went out to Barry University in Florida and, and pulled it off. Um, so that has to be up there. Winning the second one was actually at home. We hosted it. We hosted the national championship, so that was incredible in itself. Um, and then coaching, you know, I honestly, I have to say last year and just the pride that I had in, in, in taking the program and in times that, you know, it was not easy for the staff, for the players, for anyone involved, um, but getting as far as we did and, and we actually beat a, a very good team, a rival of ours, Western Washington, in the regional championship when we were out in Texas, and that one felt extra good because, you know, that, that weekend took us to another Final Four, and we hadn't been to a Final Four since 2012. So just to get us back on the map, I have to say that weekend of coaching was, was incredible last year. 
Well, thanks for being human in your answer earlier about uh, whether it was stressful or not. You admitted that maybe there was a little bit of stress there, and you you also said you tried to keep that away from the players. But when you heard that there was no more stress and you were the top dog, you were going to be the head coach that leads this team in to the D1, take us to that day. What do you remember about it and how you felt? It's interesting. I have talked to a few people about that. It was you had probably about five or ten seconds of just relief, and then it was all right. Let's get down to business. And I know it sounds kind of cliche, but that was really what happened. You know, we met as a staff. We celebrated and we're excited to move forward, but also knowing that this is going to be a big job ahead of us. And you know, this is something we're all kind of on the younger side, and this is something this is the place we want to be at for a long time. And so we need to make sure that we get down to work and don't just live in the glory days and and you know be proud of you know what's happened in Division Two, but know that we all, as a staff and as a team, are going to need to pick up the pace. Um, moving forward, so it, it got real very quickly. <laughs> it was it was exciting, but but it also it, it hit us like okay, now it's time to get down to business. Well, speaking of that business, how cool would it be to know that you were part of a class that ushered in the move from D three to D two with a national championship, and then now going from D two to D one, ending your D two run with the national championship. How cool would that be, Kristen Jones? You must be in our chalk talk or something. We talk about this all the time. It would be that's a little extra motivating factor. You know, the team, the last team in Division Three, actually won a national championship as well. So you know, we've got a lot of alumni, a great alumni presence at games and, and events, and um, you know, just having them there reminds us of of that history of the program and also makes it real and makes it known that if you do the things the right way and, and get down to business that you can make this happen as well. So this is definitely our motivating factor and, and for the kids that need a little bit extra motivation, it's there for them and some players are just doing it because they love the game and they love the department and they want to do it for that. Finally, knowing that great coaches have to continue to learn and get better every day and grow with the game, what has United Soccer Coaches meant to you in your development? Yeah, I'm a big believer in hands-on learning and getting in front of people and getting in front of, you know, whether it's a convention or seminars and just talking um, through things with people and learning from other individuals. You know, here at AC San Diego, we kind of pride ourselves in that, but also within United Soccer Association, we just – we, I think it's very important that it's a, it's a platform for coaches to get together, share ideas, talk about things, and help each other just grow and get better on a daily basis. Kristen Jones, the head coach. There's no interim. She's going to usher her team into D1 next year. She's still got business to do at her alma mater this year as they wrap up D2. They're number one in the country. You see San Diego women's soccer D2 for just a couple more months. And we wish you all the best uh, the rest of the year. And with your jump, and we appreciate your passion for your alma mater. You're doing a great job, Kristen. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you. Appreciate it. Coming up next, down the stretch we go for NWSL. Jen Cooper, Editorial Director for NWSL Broadcast, joins me. Continue to learn and build your coaching resume by attending one of United Soccer Coaches' Winter Advanced Diplomas January 6th through the 10th in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. United Soccer Coaches is conducting five advanced diplomas this January. The National, Advanced National, Premier, Advanced National Goalkeeping, and National Youth Diplomas. Go to unitedsoccercoaches.org slash education to learn more about these courses and get registered today. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by 
by Team Snap, as promised, as we went to break. Super excited to spend time with Jen Cooper. She is the editorial director for NWSL Broadcast, and I like to just call her the Zen Master of all things NWSL, perhaps all things women's soccer. We'll get into it, but, man, she is super sharp, folks. She knows everything there is to know about the NWSL, including some things that you don't even want to know. She knows, and Jen Cooper <laughs> is kind enough to join me now. Jen, great to be with you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Anytime. Well, and first off, I love your story. So before we start getting into NWSL, because I'm going to put some pressure on you, asking to name the MVP and Coach of the Year and all that good stuff and even predict the winner. But before we do that, I love your story because you, like me, you didn't play soccer, but you, like me, I fell into it before the 94 World Cup with U.S. soccer. You have a similar story with how your passion developed for soccer. Go ahead and and tell us that story because I think it's worth listening to. Well, so I, I grew up in Houston, and uh, I don't remember there being much soccer um, other than I'm pretty sure I must have heard of Pele coming to play at the Astrodome because I had a stuffed animal named Pele. But uh, I grew up as a swimmer, triathlete, tennis player. It wasn't till college I had, you know, met more friends that had played soccer. And after college, some friends started a women's rec team, and I'm like, sure, why not? And I hated it at first because I wasn't very good at it. Uh, but then I saw the 94 World Cup, and that was the first time I saw really great soccer and so much of it. And I completely fell in love with Thomas Ravelli's playing style. He was the Swedish goalkeeper that took Sweden all the way to the semifinals that year. And it just happened that my rep team's goalkeeper was heading off to grad school, and I said, hey, I'll give that a try. And it was the perfect fit for my skill set of being tall, having good eye-hand coordination and footwork from tennis, having no dribbling skills or speed, so that way I was off the field. I loved playing it. Um, I got so addicted at that point and slowly just the domino effect of, okay, I'm I'm running the team, I'm running practices, I'm going to league meetings, now I'm running the league, you know, now I'm getting involved at the state level, and then you know, as we know, what followed the 94 World Cup, of course, was the 99 Women's World Cup in the U.S. And then shortly after that, my alma mater in Houston, Rice University, added a women's varsity soccer at the same time that the WSA was launching. You know, so all of this came together, and I've, I've just been hooked ever since. Well, hooked in a deep, deep way because you, <laughs> even before—I mean, even before people were paying you to do it, you were doing it, right? You were following it, you were tracking it, you were taking care of uh, overseeing data that nobody else was doing, right? I mean, what was the trigger point that said, "I'm going to follow this all the way home"? And then, what was the trigger point that finally said, "Hey, I'm going to get paid for this too," which is awesome. Well, it didn't happen all, all at once, and and really uh, tracking a lot of the stats began with my own curiosity. Uh, I remember the very first time that I saw a U.S. soccer media guide, I actually had flown to Denver for the first ever soccer games at the new Mile High. They had a doubleheader with WSA and MLS. And they had some kind of fire sale of stuff from the Colorado Rapids office. And I saw U.S. soccer media guys like, oh, my God, I didn't know this existed. Like, list of, you know, every player and how many games they played goals and assists and all the matches and and so that kind of started just the curiosity of like that all of that's tracked and then I remember in in 2012 the U.S. woman came through Houston and I was curious about how big was our crowd relative to other crowds you know at the same time of year or against 
that team or following uh, an Olympic win. And so I slowly started building this spreadsheet that just became a monster spreadsheet that I still have. Just as as I had another question, I added another column or added another field. And it just got to the point where, okay, I've entered this much. I might as well enter everything. And then with NWSL, when I started calling Dash Games, and so I, I called Dash Games locally the first three seasons, since that data wasn't easily accessible by the league, I was like, well, I, you know, it benefits me on the call if I have that handy, so I might as well start building this out. And it just got to the point where if you're going to, you know, if you're going to put your toe in, you might as well jump into the water. Um, so I realized one of the things that I could do with all of that information was publish it because, you know, it's not out there anywhere else. And I had reached out to the league early in 2016 and said, you know, I, I'd be happy to put together an almanac for you if you want to pay me and then you guys sell it. And they're like, well, we don't have a budget for that, but, you know, you're welcome to go, you know, move forward with it. And so that was, you know, a huge labor of love for me, but it became something that slowly started creating revenue. And now that it's something that's built, I'm just adding to it each season and the funny thing is, is the VP from A&E Networks, he's no longer there, but he was one of the guys who was crucial to that A&E NWSL deal coming about that put NWSL on Lifetime for two seasons. He had purchased my almanac, and he was listening to my podcast. Since um, Houston hosted the 2016 NWSL final, I had connected with Jen Hildreth because I knew – She'd be calling those games, wouldn't have a lot of information coming from the league. You know, I was like, hey, I have this if you need this. You know, and similarly, I got to work with Allie Wagner on the draft just a few months later, you know, and I was like, look, I know you're not giving me giving a lot of information, but I've built these sheets. So I found out later when the VP called me that both Allie and Jen had said, hey, if we're going to do this, you know, if we're going to be on these broadcasts, could we actually have a real support to person, you know, real stats, real research, because, you know, as we know, the, the league hadn't matured enough to be able to provide something like that. So that was, I mean, literally a dream come true for me that someone is calling me saying, hey, can you do this thing that you love to do? <laughs> and we can pay you for it, and it can be used, uh, you know, at the next level. I mean, I've learned so much in the last two years about what information is really appropriate for TV and what is maybe just a little too esoteric or a little too complicated and how, you know, an analyst needs the data to be organized compared to how play-by-play, -play, you know, what they're looking for. They're looking for different kind of information. But, yeah, it's been so satisfying for me, and especially that, Working with Allie and Jen and the connections I've made there and, and that first season, Allie saying, hey, you know, would you have any interest in working the World Cup? Because I can connect you to the editorial director. So <laughs> I spent seven weeks in Moscow last summer, and I don't, I don't think it gets any better than that, other than, of course, spending time in France for the Women's World Cup. But, yeah, it's it's been an incredible journey. I love it. All right. Well, with that journey, let's get to present day and – NWSL, and of course, uh, one of the things we laughed about is uh, I wanted to have you on also to make sure you eliminated any uh, suggested bias, because I, I truly believe I call it like I see it. I just happen to have the best seat in the house for, I think, one of the best, if not the best women's soccer team 
in the world in the North Carolina Courage. But let's start with them. They've won the Shield for three years in a row. I mean, Jen, it's just remarkable, the team. Your thoughts on the North Carolina Courage? Well, I, I would say each one of those Shield wins has been very different. You know, 2017 was a question mark. Uh, even though that team had won the 2016 NWSL final, they had squeezed into the playoffs. You know, it was an extra time win in the semis. They narrowly escaped an extra time loss in the final, took it to penalties, won on penalties. And then the franchise gets moved from Western New York Flash to North Carolina. So nobody knew what was, what was going to come from that. Um, obviously, Paul Riley and, of course, Charlie Namo had started building something really great. I mean, I, I've referenced this a lot on the end of cell broadcast, but that 2015 draft class, I mean, that whole class is pretty stellar, but that Western New York Flash, which became the Courage, got four first-round picks, and they're all still with the team. Lynn Williams, Samantha Mewis, Abby Dahlkemper, Jalen Hinkle. That's an amazing block right there. And then you look at the consistency in the team, and I don't mean performance, I mean in, in the roster itself. And, and I think that's been one of the biggest challenges in what's still a pretty young league is keeping your roster consistent. Um, I think we've seen a little bit of it with Portland and Chicago as well. And, again, they're perennial playoff contenders. And when you have that consistency, I think the players know each other, the players play for each other, you're building a team culture that's where you get the better better performances, you know. So that first season for North Carolina, 2017, big question mark. And, you know, they grabbed the shield. I think they faltered just a little bit at the end of the season. And, of course, they kind of got robbed of Sabina when she got injured in the semifinal. You know, I still think that's a big question mark on how that 2017 final would have ended up. But then you look at 2018, which is a whole different story. I mean, incredible record set, set one loss the entire year, including ICC and preseason and everything, most goals, most wins, all that dominating performance in, in the final. And then this year, which was the first year since the Courage existed that you had significant national team absences, right, because you had the big – World Cup window. Um, so that, it was a different courage, you know, so depth came into play so much more. Not that the club wasn't deep before, but those players, they weren't getting two or three games a season. They were getting six or seven or eight. You know, we saw Kerry Ricaro and Kaylee Kurtz play a lot more, uh, you know, this season. So they still won the shield, but it was up and down. You know, um, it took later to clinch. It took later to, to, to win the shield. And I think that made the whole season much more interesting as opposed to last year it got to the point, well, well you know, no one can catch them. It's just, you know, it, it's not as interesting. And, and we've seen the courage struggle. And, and I, I really appreciated Paul Riley's really frank comments following the ICC about how, you know, the players coming back from the World Cup weren't really game fit, whether it was mental exhaustion or physical exhaustion or whatever you want to chalk it up to. And I feel like they turned a corner with those two ridiculously incredible matches where six goals were scored in each match, especially when you think about scoring six against Portland at Portland. They had already slaughtered Orlando early in the season with the 5-0 win, so I don't think any of us were too surprised about the 6-1 game against Orlando, though as someone calling at the booth, I was like, come on, Orlando, I know you've got a good defensive performance in you, but 
you know, they did all, all that they could do. So I see it as different chapters in the North Carolina book, and it's not – it's not the same team each year, and it's not the same performance each year. Obviously, you know they're they're getting the shield, and it will be interesting to see um, how the how the final ends up this year, especially with North Carolina hosting. And what I'm really looking forward to is that it looks like we will have different matchups for the semifinal. That, that it shouldn't be Carolina playing Chicago again. I'm all, I, I like you know I like to mix it up a little. It's like not the same old, same old. I think the biggest thing, other than, of course, you know, how Paul Riley you know, runs his team, is that consistency of roster. If you can build a team like that and keep that team together, getting them playing for each other. I, I still remember that 2016 final in Houston. You know, Paul Riley had been ejected in the semifinal, so he had to watch the final from the suites. So by the time he, he gets down to the field after they've won on penalties, uh, you know, I, I love seeing him sprint down the field, and Sam, Samantha Mewis and Jalen Hinkle are sprinting the other direction to, to jump into his arms and just seeing, like, that absolute joy, you know, that, mm. that you don't always see that between player and coach. And so that that said a lot to me then, and I, I think that still holds true. We're here with Jen Cooper, who is the editorial director for NWSL Broadcasts, and she is Plug and Play. We're going to take a quick break, come back with more Jen Cooper, ask her to pick who is going to win this year's NWSL Championship and who's going to win all the awards. Stay with us. United Soccer Coaches Podcast. Looking for ways to improve your training sessions? Quick Goal has supplied the highest quality soccer goals, seating, field, and training equipment for over 30 years. From backyards to the world's greatest pitches, Quick Goal has products essential for every level of the game. As an official partner to the United Soccer Coaches and technical partner to U.S. Soccer, Quick Goal knows what equipment you need to take your game to the next level. Visit quickgoal.com to satisfy all your equipment needs. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team you're hearing the wisdom and the passion of Jen Cooper, who is the editorial director for NWSL Broadcast. Dean Linky, pleased to be joined with Jen Cooper, who, as I said earlier, just is such a great resource and so much passion. Great job breaking down the North Carolina Curries. And by the way, those were all her words, folks, not mine. So, so <laughs> well said, Jen. All right, with that, uh, go ahead and, and give me your pick because we're down the stretch run. It's really tight. It does look like Chicago may finish in that two spot, which gives them a well-deserved home game finally for the playoffs, which is huge. But who are going to be the other teams uh, battling it out uh, for the NWL championship? Well, and, it, and it's funny because one of the things I needed to do for broadcast this week was figure out, okay, can Chicago clinch a semifinal host, you know, hosting slot this weekend? Can Portland, what has to happen? And, that kind of made my eyes spin. But uh, Chicago has the upper hand, uh, but, of course, they only have one game left to play. Um, only Chicago and Portland, ha- you know, can, can host along with uh, North Carolina. Right now I kind of give the itch to Chicago. They're, they're on a roll. Of course, the incredible Sam Kerr, who I still don't understand why she wasn't in the final three for, for the FIFA Best Award. Um, you know, she's on a roll, broke her own single-season record. Um, I, I think it's theirs for the taking. Uh, I, I think she and, and Sam Kerr – sorry, she and Yuki Nagasato are clicking even better than last year. And it, it was kind of 
strange to see how North Carolina just absolutely shut them down in the semifinal last year when, for the most part, the history between Carolina and Chicago, Chicago has, you know, beaten North Carolina more than the other way around. Um, but, I, you know, I'm seeing the maybe, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to say maturation of this team because Rory, similar to, to Paul Riley, he's he's kept a team together. You know, almost all of his players are players that were drafted by Chicago and have stayed and, and grown in Chicago. Um, and I think the final piece of the puzzle for Chicago, you know, with the return of Julie Ertz is seeing Ertz and Davidson paired uh, in the center back line. And, and I think that's, that's going to be really key. And then you add to that, you, you look at the saves that Alyssa Neres has been making, um, you know, the confidence of winning a World Cup, uh, you know, making that PK save in, in the semifinal. I think we're seeing uh, a confidence level of her we haven't seen in a while. So I, I believe, you know, I'll go and say that I, I can totally see it being a, a North Carolina-Chicago final. Um, obviously, Portland is clinched, and they could get a semifinal. Um but you know, there's a lot, a lot still to be determined on on that. Um, I I think Chicago has the momentum, and then I'm thinking that that rain squeezes in and gets the last spot. The rain over Utah. Okay, all right. Let's do rapid fire for awards, and some of these may not even be awards, but I'm still going to make you pick who's going to win them and why. Uh, we'll start with the easy one, the forward of the year. There's only one choice for that, right? Well, there's not even an award for forward of the year. You mean golden boot? Well, yeah, but I'm, I'm making my own award. <laughs> or you have Jen your own award. Oh. Yeah. Okay. They're the Jen Cooper Awards, forward of the year. Oh. Okay. Yeah, well, it has to be Sam Kerr. She's, uh, you're right. She's got to be one of the best in the world, if not the best in the world. Okay, midfielder of the year. Again, even if there's not one, I want to know your midfielder of the year. Hmm. I mean,. You know, your North Carolina haters are going to hate you and me for saying it, but I would pick any North Carolina midfielder. That's <laughs> <laughs> so well said, right? Uh, yeah, well, yeah. well, it's a kind of thing like, you know, we didn't see much of Mewis this season, and then she's been kind of picking it up. Denise O'Sullivan, I think, is still, you know, very underrated. Just Yeah, yeah. Dabinia. I like that. Man. Another, another player who, uh, when I was working on the notes last week for North Carolina versus Houston, the game on ESPN News, like one of the little headlines I, I was thinking about writing was Dabinia, you know, colon, the next Marta. Because <laughs> yeah, she has yeah. – she's on a whole different level from when she came into NWSL two years ago. Well, and I give Paul Riley all the credit in the world for that because when she first came in, she actually wasn't playing a ton. And Paul told her why and what and how you're going to get more playing time. She did all of those. When Brazil was eliminated, she called Paul and said, I'm coming home tomorrow, put me in the lineup. She scored immediately. So she's bought in entirely, and I think Paul Riley deserves a lot of credit there. Yeah, her her post-Women's World Cup performances have been amazing. Defender of the year. Hmm, Megan Oyster. Interesting. You think she's got well, enough visibility to, to win that? Well, see, she doesn't have enough visibility to win that. Uh, but when you look at – that week-in, week-out defender um, that, you know, in the Becky Sauerbrunn model of always gets it done without people noticing that she's getting it done. And 
the rain have had a ridiculously low um, amount of goals allowed until just really the last couple of games. Um, so I would I would give it to her. Goalkeeper of the year. It's got to be Barnhart. I mean, it's that we're we're looking at the Nicole Nicole Barnhart Renaissance, and and I don't think it's appropriate to give goalkeeper to anyone who only played half the season. Um, that's that's just my my personal belief. So I'm looking at you know the keepers that played almost the whole season or the whole season for their their team. And Jane Campbell's had some great penalty kick saves, but you know she can be inconsistent. Um, Aubrey Bledsoe, I, I think, has earned her at least one camp with the national team, but neither one is, is playing on the level of Nicole Barnhart, who's got, what, two, three more games to to tie and maybe pass Adriana French's uh, single-season shutout record. Coach of the year. <laughs> and, of course, we always pick this before the final, right? You, yeah, they never wait until you got to kind of say Paul Riley, though I, I would say Flatko would, would definitely have to get a, an honorable mention. When you think about all of the incredible roster juggling that the Reign have had to do this year. And then with that, who's going to win the championship? So I said before, I, th- I think it's, uh, you know, a Chicago-North Carolina final. Um, you know, because Chicago, yeah, they can't, they can't end up fourth. So, so they can't, they can't face North Carolina in the semifinal. I'm going to give just a tiny bit of edge. To Chicago because you have the the pent up energy of Sam Kerr who came away pretty frustrated from the Women's World Cup. Um, you know has just been on a roll the past few years once she you know finally got healthy and I think is connected with probably a more complete team than she's been able to play with since her early years with with West, Western New York Flash. So. Last year in the semifinal, it seemed like uh, Carolina could shut down Chicago because they really just had to shut down Yuki Nagasato. But we're, we're seeing more people step up for Chicago. And like I mentioned, the the, the combination of Ertz and, and Davidson in the center back with uh, an Alyssa Nair playing at, at a higher level. Um, regardless of what happens in the final, I think it's going to be ridiculously close. Uh, I, I would not see... Um, a scoreline like we saw last fall, I would see a, a 1-0 game or a 1-1 that goes to penalties. All right, well said. I think those are two great teams and uh, great wisdom. I, I, I'm going to put one more little bit of pressure on you here. It's, uh, it's a <laughs> critical time. As you know, Kate Markgraf's got a big decision, and the league is so important to what the U.S. Women's National Team is going to do moving forward. There's uh, going to be some pressure on players going overseas and all of that means that the hiring of the coach is critical. From where you sit, what's your opinion on the best choice for the next coach for the U.S. Women's National Team? Well, I've heard, you know, the conventional wisdom of the coach needs to come out of NWSL or it doesn't look good for NWSL. And I understand the reasoning behind that. But when you look at the fact that we only have five of the nine coaches who coach more than a year in the league, um, that 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 makes for pretty slim pickings, right? Um, I've also heard that you know it needs to be a woman. Like I think it's great if it's a woman, but I don't think you should pick someone just because you know uh, they're a woman. Um, and I think it's the hardest job to 
to find the right fit for. I mean, you're inheriting the best team in the world, back-to-back World Cup champions. You're following Jill Ellis, who's the only coach to do back-to-back, you know, um, women's World Cup champions, you know. Um, Such an incredibly talented team, and you're picking it up with such a tight turnaround to the Olympics, right? Um, you're, you're not getting that year of, uh, okay, let me do some friendlies and have a lot of big camps. It's going to be a pretty tight turnaround, and you're going to have to cut some people that were on the World Cup roster because Olympic rosters are, are, are smaller. Um, so, I mean, my, my thought for who the coach could be, I'm thinking if they're going into WSL, I think your best choice is Vlatko Adonofsky. Um, obviously, Paul Riley took himself out of the running, but Vlatko Adonofsky, I think, has the necessary background of someone who absolutely enjoys developing players, identifying talent. You know, um, we've seen him select players in drafts that, you know, nobody heard of and that he gets incredible performances out of them. So I could see him being, uh, you know, a worthy candidate. But then if you don't go into BUSL, I'm thinking if you're looking at the college ranks, then it has to be someone like Steve Swanson out of Virginia who coached the 2012 uh, USA U-20 team that won that U-20 Women's World Cup. And, of course, that in- that included Mewis, Dunn, Ertz, Kaleo High, you know, other players like that. Um, you know, knows the college system, knows U.S. soccer, has coached on the national team level. I could I could see that being a natural um, uh, natural path. I don't see Kate Markgraf and U.S. Soccer going really outside of the existing U.S. structure. You know, um, one of the things last week I, I was talking on my podcast with Dan Lalette about potential coaches, and we were talking, we we're kind of comparing uh, Tom Sermani and Vladko Andonovsky because you know Sermani came in as somewhat of a foreigner, but not really a foreigner. You know, kind of knew the players, kind of thing. But but my point to Dan was. Blocko has been coaching in this league with these players for the last seven years, where when Sermani came into the U.S. national team, yeah, he knew some of these players, and he had coached in WSA, but it had been almost a decade. So, you know, the, the familiarity, I, I think, is going to be the biggest advantage that somebody in, in WSL has. But I, but I don't see... I don't see them pick it going like with, oh, you know, like if Pia were still available or Serena Biegman from the Netherlands or that kind of like, you know, let's go with the big name. But I don't think that would, would serve them well. Jen Cooper is so amazing. Like I literally could run like 10 miles while you break down all of this and then come back. And <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. Jen Cooper, great to have you on the United Soccer Coaches podcast. And thanks for all you do supporting the women's game. You truly are magical, Jen. Thanks for being with us. Thanks so much. And coming up, we meet two more members of United Soccer Coaches' current 30 Under 30 class. Team Snap's awesome. I have five teams on Team Snap. There are no questions asked by the players, the parents. Very easy to use. Very, very, very easy. Simple to use. Everyone, you know, everything's right there. Messages, availability, boom, boom, boom. I've looked at other at other things, and I think Team Snap sets the bar for this type of team management software is the best that I found. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. I'm Dean Linky. This is always my favorite part of the show. We get to know a couple more members of our 30 Under 30 class. And up first, Richard 
Wall. He is now the assistant coach for the Ball State University women's soccer team. He played at a couple schools in North Carolina, originally from New Jersey. We're going to get to know him a little better right now as we welcome in Richard Wall. Richard, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me, Dean. Yeah, delighted to have you. And uh, as I kind of like to do to start these usually is a little elevator speech. And because it's a podcast and we got plenty of time, you know, tell us the whole story, where, where you were born, how you got into soccer, how you ended up in North Carolina, and, and in fact, how you ended up at Ball State. And we'll sit back and enjoy. Go ahead. As mentioned, I was originally from New Jersey. Uh, family relocated to Charlotte when I was a child. Um, so I actually got involved with the Charlotte Eagles at a very young age, um, which we'll come back to in a second, as that's pretty much why I'm at Ball State University as well. Um, grew up playing in the Charlotte area for multiple clubs um, all the way through the high school age and uh, wound up at Wingate University as a freshman, transferred to Gardner-Webb University uh, to finish out my career. Was a was a grad assistant for a year at Gardner-Webb before kind of branching out. Uh, was a volunteer at Belmont Abbey College for 15 months, did a season with the Red Bull program, uh, training programs, came back down to Brevard College in North Carolina as the assistant, um, and then from there, it's really kind of been, uh, you know, I was the head coach at Lee's McCray College uh, for the last four years. Um, and meanwhile, also coaching at the USL2 level uh, with West Virginia Chaos, now uh, West Virginia Alliance FC, as well as the Tri-Cities FC Otters. Um, and so this summer, I was approached by Josh Rice, who is the head coach here at Ball State. He was hired this summer. Um, and so he was a longtime Charlotte Eagle player. Um, that I've known since I was a kid. So uh, in a roundabout way, Charlotte Connections are what got me to Indiana. So does that mean that uh, your goal all along was to get to the D1 level as you were take, making all these stops and also spending time at USL2, or was it more about just finding the right opportunity at the right time, Richard? Yeah, I think it's a little of both, to be honest. You know, I enjoyed playing at the D1 level. There's a There's a certain excitement that goes along with it. Um, you know, my mom played college basketball at Wagner uh, back in the day. I played at Gardner-Webb. Um, you know, we're, we're big sports fans in general as a family, and so um, a lot of that, you know, revolves around Division One athletics. So I think there's definitely an excitement level that comes with just being at that level. You know, I think the right opportunity is kind of the, the key point to it, though. Working with somebody like Josh makes it very easy, you know, and enjoyable. So we're, we're in a good place now where we're at, and wherever we go in the future, uh, we'll be excited when that opportunity comes. Living in North Carolina myself and knowing what uh, I feel like I knew about the Charlotte Eagles, it's a very spiritually based team, right? And, and it's about good people doing good things. Am I correct on that? Yes. What what drew you into that? Because uh, I remember the Charlotte Eagles actually playing against uh, Cleveland City back in the day in the U- for the USL Championship on Fox Soccer and calling that game. And Mark Steffen was the coach, right, way back then? Yes. Did you ever work with him? Uh, so I've never specifically worked with him, although I know him uh, as well as any kid could probably know him uh, while he was the coach there. So, yeah, my family got involved back in 95 with the Eagles. Um we were a host family for the team. Uh, my parents did game day operations uh, for the club as well. Uh, my sister and I, we, we played for the youth teams uh, up until the club kind of disbanded uh, during its first uh, wave of being a youth club. So, yeah, we, we've just kind of always grown up in that environment, um, faith-based family, um, you know, and we just, again, we kind of just caught on with the Eagles and 
Um, I think my dad is still to this day kind of helping out with the the USL2 side now. And so, yeah, it's just been kind of a part of my life uh, from a young age. And you get to meet people like Josh, Coach Steffens, uh, among many, many others that we were a host family for, again, over probably 15 players throughout the years. So it's it's full circle. It's a family. Gosh, I love that. I love that uh, you're that connected, and I love the fact you've got an athletic family. So let's go a little deeper into that. Uh, what, what do your mom and dad do now? And remind us, uh, again, where your mom played basketball, and then how many brothers and sisters do you have? Yeah, so uh, I'll start with my parents. So um, my mom, she, she played basketball at Wagner University or Wagner College um, um, back in the day. Uh, she's probably the best athlete in the family if we're giving credit where credit's due. Uh, <laughs> She was actually one of my coaches for a long time uh, growing up as a kid, so a lot of lessons learned from her. Um, my father, he was a, well, as well as my mother, they were both multi-sport athletes through high school. Uh, my dad has been in the, um, it's, a, it's the bakery machinery sales industry, so he's been doing that since he was 18. Um, so he's been very successful and enjoys what he does and in his free time he uh, still does stuff with the Charlotte Independents and the Charlotte Eagles um, and then I've got two older sisters um, one was not an athlete one was an athlete um, both were in the arts as well um, both are very successful doing what they do today um, so yeah that's a bit about the family there. So now you find yourself in Indiana I think it's Muncie Indiana if I remember listening to David Letterman correctly as uh he's a ball state alum a proud ball state alum i'm right on that right on david letterman muncie right correct. yep correct okay so yeah tell us how you're liking muncie by way of new jersey most of your life in north carolina i will say i grew up in the midwest i feel like the folks in indiana are fantastic people yeah so far so good um it's it's tough to compare because every stop along the way you get you know pros and cons with everything and um, I think that's probably the, the best way to describe this stop is that there's definitely a lot of pros. Um, you know, being in Banner Elk, North Carolina with Lee's McRae College, there wasn't a ton to do, but you're in the, a beautiful part of the world. Um, mountains all around you, scenic, um, you know, views at every, every direction. So, uh, again, some pros and cons to that here, you know. You've got everything you need within a stone's throw. Um, you know, you're you're an hour outside of Indianapolis, which is nice. Um, you know, so it's it's kind of like, I guess, suburban North Carolina, and you know, kind of any any area in North Carolina that's an hour outside of you know Charlotte, Raleigh, Greensboro. Um, you know, you got green grass, you got trees, and you know, um, lots of families. So uh, you know, it's it's a nice area though, and we're we're happy to be here. Tell me about the transition into coaching women. When did that happen? How did that happen? And what do you enjoy most about it? Yeah, so it just happened. Uh, August 5th was my first day here at Ball State. You know, at the, at the end of the day, soccer is still soccer. Uh, I'm pretty sure most places across the world, you, you start playing rec soccer or co-ed soccer at a young age, and everybody's taught to do the exact same things. Um, so to me, there, there's no difference. Um, it's still the same game, still the same sport. Um, some nuances here and there that it might be different, but outside of that, it's, it's still soccer, so it's still a game that I have a passion for. Um, you know, what's been great so far is just being around, uh, you know, the 26 individuals that are, are all driven to be successful each and every day, uh, do their best on the field and training in the classroom, everything. So, um, 
so far, just, you know, again, no, no complaints. I'd, I'd probably be happy no matter where I was coaching. Um, you know, it's just the way of life for me. Yeah, it sounds like it. it sounds like as long as you're on a soccer field, you got a whistle, you're good to go, right? Yeah, I don't even use a whistle. Just uh, enjoy <laughs> being where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, I figured you didn't use a whistle. That's kind of expressing the, the idea of yeah. just being out on the field and being around the athletes. And, and you know, yeah. one of the things that uh, I got to believe, particularly knowing uh, what you've told me about your family and then your time with the Charlotte Eagles, is you understand that it's bigger than soccer at this point. You're helping mold these young women for, you know, their lives well beyond soccer. How important is that part of the role to you? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's massive, uh, whether you're coaching youth or college or any level. Um, but particularly at the college level with the way the model is right now, you're, you're only competing for 10 to 12 weeks out of the year. Um, so that leaves a lot of time. That's 40 to 42 weeks of the year that isn't spent competing. Um, so you've got to, you've got to mold them. You've got to, you know, help, uh, help them accomplish their goals, whether that's as a professional, as a player, um, you know, what's next, what's beyond soccer. Um, you know, and then just getting through the, the everyday life, um, you know, everybody's going through something and, you know, how can, how can we use our experience as coaches, especially, you know, with 18 to 22 year olds, how can we help them get through tough times? Uh, Cause again, everybody's kind of going through something and, you know, and then also kind of embracing the good times as well and um, just enjoying those together. So yeah, it's, it's much bigger than just soccer. Well, you've already made some great memories. I'm going to ask you to dig deep and give me your best memory as a soccer player and your best memory so far as a coach at any level. What uh, comes to mind as your sort of key memories right now? That's that's tough. Uh, as a player, there, there's really too many. Um, you know, I, I've been blessed. So, I'm, you know, again, just too many memories to pinpoint just one. Um, as a coach, again, also too many, but you know, I, I think some of the uh, more memorable ones are probably my time at Lee's McRae most recently. Um, you know, I'll never forget kind of my first season. Um, it was an up-and-down year, um, but we kind of we, we rode out a, a hot streak kind of near the end of it going into conference tournament. And uh, we, we had one player who um, really didn't play a lot throughout his career, and um, he ended up catching fire in October, and I think he scored in – like five of the last six games. Uh, and then on his senior night, he, I think he had the game tying goal and the game winning goal, um, which was really just kind of special to see, you know, somebody that had kind of gone through that four year process and again, not really had the success, uh, wasn't a key player, um, at any point in his career. And I just remember kind of going through the, the last three, four weeks of the season, being like, Hey, look, you're not starting today, but, you know, you're going to get your opportunity. I know you're going to put it in the back of the net because you've been doing it all week in training and you've done it the last four or five games and uh, just kind of culminated there in his in his senior day. It was a really special moment for him, um, but it's something that I'll just never forget because it's, you know, that that process and just kind of sticking with it. And, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a great experience to just be part of it. What a great message. I'm not surprised that uh, based on how we started this that, you would have uh, something inspiring at the end as well. Richard Wall, I love your journey. We'll continue to, to track you because i got a feeling in five to ten years you'll be leading some team to great success, and I'll have to have you on anyway talking about uh, winning championships as well. So thanks so much for being on the program, Richard, and congrats on being part of the 30 Under 30 class. Thanks, Dean. Well done, Richard. One more 30 Under 30 member to meet. Stay with us. 
Registration is now open for the 2020 United Soccer Coaches Convention in Baltimore. Make your plans to join us January 15th through the 19th for five days of coaching education, networking, meal and social functions, award presentations, and more. Register before December 11th to secure the best rate. Visit unitedsoccercoachesconvention.org to learn more. The United Soccer Coaches Convention, your event for all things coaching. Welcome back to the United Soccer Coaches Podcast presented by Team Snap. One more visit with one of our superstars from the 30 under 30 class. We're pleased to be joined by Brigida Palatino. She goes by Bridgie. She is the head women's soccer coach now in her second year at Curry College just outside of Boston. And she joins me now. Brigida, Bridgie, however you want to go, great to be with you. Hi, Dean. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be on your podcast. Well, it's great to have you on, and I like I like the nickname Bridgie. How young were you when that uh, took? Oh, geez. Uh, since I was a kid, probably five, six years old. I don't know. Bridget is very formal. So if you're calling me Bridget, <laughs> I think it's my mom talking to me. Yeah, you might be in trouble, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a unique name. Any backstory behind Bridget? Yeah, actually. So my parents were born in Portugal, um, and they came over when they were about 11 or so years old. And um, Bridgeta was actually my great-great-grandmother's name, so it's a family name. I think I mentioned to you before we recorded that my wife uh, is Portuguese, Tabao, very Portuguese, and, and grew up in Brazil, so she'll be happy to know that uh, we're keeping that Portuguese fever going here on this podcast. So, all right, let's get to know you a little bit better. Tell us a little bit about, uh, get, uh, you know what, let's just do this. Let's do your elevator speech. Tell us where you, where you grew up, how you ended up uh, where you are. So I'm originally from Western Massachusetts, um, Ludlow, or born and raised Springfield area. Um, went to Wilbraham Munson and uh, Western Mass, and then for college, uh, ended up getting out of the state, went to Connecticut College in New London, Connecticut. Uh, I played there and uh, loved it so much that I actually decided to stay. Um, so was there for four years, and then after graduating, I got my master's there and stayed for another few seasons. Um, so I ended up being in New London, Connecticut for nine years, helping coach uh, Connecticut College. Um, great NESCAC school. Um, helped Norm Riker win a NESCAC championship for the first time in program history. Ended up making two NCAA appearances with that program. And uh, after getting my master's and helping build success in that program, decided I should probably spread my wings and become a head coach. Um, so I ended up getting an opportunity to be the head coach at Mount Ida College um, in Newton, Massachusetts. Um, so after my first season there, uh, made history with that program, helping turn that program around. Uh, unfortunate situation, the college had actually closed. Um, so after helping build success there in that one season, what I tell people is the soccer gods thought that season was so special that they didn't want me to have a second because um, it was pretty special what we were able to do in that one season. And uh, luckily, uh landed on my feet pretty quickly after the college closure, and now I'm currently at Curry College, uh, entering my second season, leading the Colonels. Well, and I was reading that um, I think you won eight or nine games in your first year, so you had a great campaign. I think one of the best uh, they've had as well. So off to a pretty good start, right, with a new team? So did well um, helping change the culture and program at Mount Ida, and now looking to do the same at Curry. Um, in a really, really competitive conference, we're in the Commonwealth Coast Conference, um, and I would equate that in terms of level. There's not a lot of discrepancy from the top and the bottom. So any given year, anyone can win a championship. So I was able to experience that 
in my history with um, Connecticut College, being able to turn, turn that program around, and now hoping to instill that, that belief and that mentality at Curry as well. So you said you played in college. When did you know you wanted to be a coach? I actually didn't know right away. My senior year, I ended up having a coaching change, and from that, I was able to really see the impact a coach can have in a program and turning a program around. Um, and the belief that it took and the confidence that it took and the energy that it took for a program that was in the dark ages for a long time. And so from that experience with Norm Riker, I think that really spun it as, oh, this could actually be a profession for me. Well, I love that answer because, you know, whether it's from this perspective on United Soccer Coaches or even my own perspective as having two boys that were really good athletes, the difference a coach makes on how they are impacted both on and off, the, in their case, basketball court is huge and it sounds like that made a direct impact on you wanting to lead young women right uh, not just on the field but off the field it did I always loved the game I always loved playing I always wanted to play and I always had the passion for the game but never really had a lot of role models especially female role models as coaches and then just being able to see a change in a program and see what that coach could actually do to a team's confidence and to a team's belief and just be able to see a program, turn it around, and build success, that really changed things for me. And that's kind of how I ended up getting into coaching. Knowing that uh, women's soccer is so prominent right now, another World Cup title for the USA women, Megan Rapinoe just named the best player in the world, NWSL is thriving, and there's never been more parity in women's college soccer at all levels. Where do you see yourself in 10 years from now? Have you laid out that plan, or are you just rolling with it? I really do love where I'm at. Um, I love Curry. I think it's a great place to be. Um, I'm just outside of Boston. So you get a lot of perks from being just outside the city. First-time home buyer. just bought a house in Rhode Island. So I see a lot of stability in where I'm at, and I just really enjoy coaching, educating, mentoring student-athletes. They have the drive. They have the focus not only academically, um, at the Division Three level, but also on the soccer field as well. So my 10-year plan, you know, I think continuing to build success here at Curry and kind of see what doors open up from that. We're here with uh, Bridgie Palatino, short for Brigida Palatino, the head women's coach at Curry College D3 in a very tough conference. Uh, what made you want to be a part of the 30 Under 30 program? I had friends who, uh, fellow coaches who had applied and they spoke really positively of the 30 and the 30 program. Stefan King, is. I took a coaching course with him, um, and he had, you know, recommended it. And um, I've always been, a, you know, part of United Soccer Coaches as a young assistant coach. So always being part of the organization and seeing all the benefit that you get from United Soccer Coaches and the network that you get, the support and the camaraderie that you get from it. Um, and just from that, I ended up applying for – the 30 and the 30 program to continue to get more support and extend my network. And it's been an incredible experience so far. And I'm, I feel really fortunate to be surrounded by such a great group of fellow 30 under 30 coaches, um, not just in my class, but in previous classes as well. So well said. And who is your mentor with the 30 under 30 program? I have Mike Navarre. He's out at Augsburg out in Minnesota, and he's an absolute rock star. Um, so I got matched with Mike and He's been a great support system for me, um, and we very, we see the game very similarly. It's not just about the game, but your role as a coach to educate, to mentor, and just to be a positive role model for your student-athletes and, and help them 
in their four years in that journey. Finally then, because we appreciate you sharing your journey with us, who have been some key role models on your journey that have helped shape you into the person and coach that you have become? My parents, definitely. Um, my dad's been a great support for me, and my mom and just my family's been a great support. In terms of the coaching world, uh, Norm Riker helped get me into coaching, and he was the one that kind of instilled that belief in a program that really was able to change it around. And from that experience, um, I was able to see what a head coach can do to build success. Also, Tanya Armolino knows that. She's out at Sydney Plattsburgh. She's been a great support for me. And there's a lot of great female coach role models that I now have um, that I didn't realize growing up. It's a really strong network. And just having all the coaches with United Soccer, um, I've been able to get my premier diploma, so I worked my way up in that. And there's just a lot of great coaches involved in the game, and it's a great network. So those are a few of my mentors, my role models. But in terms of the coaching world, it's so small, and there's a lot of great connections that you can have. Finally, because you've been so enlightening sharing us your journey, what might be one thing about you that we won't read in your bio that, or that has anything to do with soccer that we might find interesting or intriguing? I do have a lot of energy, and I don't drink coffee. So at 7 a.m., I still have a lot of energy. At 7 p.m., I still have a lot of energy without having coffee. I potentially attribute it to a lot of frequent cat naps. I'm just kidding. Um, but no, I, I just have a lot of energy, and um, I'm sure when you meet me, you can sense that. Um, but that's not necessarily put in my bio um, and on my resume. So just the energy that I bring is something that I, I think is pretty notable. Well, Bridgie, if you can have all that energy and master the ability for catnaps, then you are the queen of queens, I think, because that's, uh, I mean, that's a characteristic we all would love to have, right? Nothing beats a great catnap, right? <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> it keeps you going. All right. Well, listen, it's been a pleasure getting to know you. Bridgie Palatino, she is the head women's soccer coach now in her second season at Curry College. That's D3, and she is a proud member of our 30 Under 30, and we're proud to have spent some time with her. Bridgie, thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Dean. Thanks for having me. Her name is Bridgie, and a personality to match the name. I like it. Portuguese double bonus for me anyway. All right. want to thank all of our great guests as well as Sean Chevrolet and Michael Knipper from United Soccer Coaches. I appreciate all of you tuning in. We'll be back same time, same channel next week for another edition of the United Soccer Coaches podcast presented by Team Snap. I'm Dean Linky. Have a great day, everybody.